Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I thought I would start today by giving you a little window into our lives as staff, okay? I'm sure that some of you wonder about the mysterious process of choosing um, message topics, okay? And I mean, some of you no doubt think it's very spiritual process, and a lot of the time it is, but sometimes it looks a little bit like this. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate for you how it looked last week when I was talking to Pastor Chris. I went to Pastor Chris and I said, hey Chris, have any ideas for my message topic next weekend? And Chris said, I was thinking you should do a message on some obscure Old Testament character. That is a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> like, your favorite guy. What was his name again? Ehud? Yes, yes, him, him. <laughs> he was so excited about it. His whole face changed. <laughs> and then I said, I, I was kind of hoping to preach from Luke again. So I said this, what if I did both Ehud and Luke? Not possible, he said. <laughs> and I replied, challenge accepted. <laughs> so today, I will not only be preaching from the book of Luke, I will also be going to the Old Testament and <laughs> preaching on Ehud. <laughs> and we are going to have a good time doing it, all right? And by the way, that's my first caricature. It's not bad, I must say. Eh? <laughs> I drew that. I draw stuff. You just don't tick me off or I'll make you look like that. And I'll put it all over Facebook and I've got lots of friends. All right, so we're going to go to two stories today. I'm gonna, there's, they're actually very different stories, but I want to show you uh, two different ways that something can look in the Bible. And uh, we're going to start in Ehud, um, but I want to give you a little bit of an explanation of what I'm doing today, okay? So when I read, when I read my devotions, um, my thoughts come fast, you know? I'll just be writing down different things. And so actually, I'm going to give you eight points in this message today. There's going to be eight points. Eight points, not eight. Eight. And um, very often, at the end of a message, we'll give you a weekly challenge. And it's a prescribed weekly challenge. Do this this week. Pray about this. Think about this. Read this, right? Today, I'm not going to do that. Because there's so many points, what I'd like you to do is, just as we're going through, just prayerfully be asking the Holy Spirit, where do you want me to stop today? Where do you want to arrest my attention? And what do you want to teach me this week? So I'm not going to tell you what the weekly challenge is, but if you have that mindset going through the whole message, listening to the Holy Spirit, what does he want to show you today? Then one of those eight points, you'll never remember all eight, but you might remember one. That's the one you should jot down and say, Lord, what would you like me to do with it this week? All right? And I'm going to pray before we begin. Father, I thank you that your spirit is here and waiting for us. And Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be as ready as you are. And God, I pray that today you would speak and that you would speak clearly to each heart and each individual person in this room and that you would give us one thing to work on that would increase our level of courage. And I pray, God, that you would minister deeply to each of our hearts and souls. Amen. Ehud 
came, uh, was a ruler in Israel after the death of Joshua. Now, um, Joshua led after Moses. He lived to an old age, and when he died, there was no ruler to take over. It was not, there was no succession plan. And so what happened was God would ri- uh, raise up what they called judges. Judges preceded the kings in Israel. The first judge that helped rule was Othniel, uh, and he was very successful. He brought peace to the land for 40 years, and then he died, and Ehud was raised up. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we're going to be reading his story today. Now, Ehud would have lived between 1400 and 1500 BC, and I'm a history buff, so I like putting things in their historical context. That means that Ehud lived before Buddha, Gautama, uh, was, was ever born or alive. He lived before the Trojan War. He lived before the conception of Rome, and he lived before even the legendary Hercules lived, if he lived. And it's interesting to me that all these characters in history who are seen as legends are, old, are, are younger than the actual hero of today's story, Ehud. That's a remarkable thing to me. His story is found in Judges 3, starting in verse 12, and I'm going to read the whole thing to you. And if, in you, if you were in middle school, you know this is the best story there is in the Bible. So just hold on to your hats, because this is an exciting story, okay? The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon, king of the Moab, power over Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. And after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, that is Jericho. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, we gloss over these numbers as if they're nothing. 18 years, that's a long, long time. That's a long time to be under the boot of an evil dictator. So then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Jerah. He was a left-handed Benjaminite. And remember that, because being left-handed is important to the story. He was a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Now, this was not when he was leader already. He was just delivering a tribute, uh, uh, cash or or gold or grain or something like that, so that Eglon would uh, not oppress them further. But Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. I'm not adding that in. That's the inspired word of scripture, (laughs) calling out Eglon for his dietary habits. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him, and while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool, Ehud said, I have a word from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud would not, could not withdraw the sword from his belly. And Eglon's insides came out. Now Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. 
Now, pause for a minute. The King James Version of the Bible has given us a wonderful thing in the description of, of Ehud's actual escape. Because it translates this not as porch or porico, but it says that Ehud escaped out the king's latrine. That is a toilet. Like an outhouse. This story is so awesome. <laughs> he escaped not out the porch, lowering himself by some rope, but down the sewage drain. I don't even know how that would have looked 1500 BC, but it would have been awful. And that's how devoted Ehud was. And no wonder then that when he got out, um, he led uh, Israel into a victory. But first we have to discover King Eglon. Uh, Ehud was gone when, the king, when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought that he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the door of the upstairs room, so they took the key and opened the door, and there was their Lord lying on the dead, dead on the floor. I got it wrong. I actually drew this without realizing that he should be dead. I put him on his throne, sorry. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He crossed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. There he arrived and he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim. I have a ram's horn, by the way. It sits in my office. I sound it every morning to summon my staff. <laughs> and then Kyle Shepherd blows his ram's horn from his cubicle to answer back, we are coming. This is true. I actually do this. He told them, Follow me, because the Lord has handed, me over to you, has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan, leading over to Moab, and did not let anyone cross over. That day they struck down 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped, and Moab became subject to the king that day, and the land was peaceful for 80 years. 80 years of peace. What a remarkable thing that Ehud did. And this story teaches us. Now, I think a lot about leadership. In fact, I read very little philosophy and theology these days. I read mostly leadership books, and I've been, I'm kind of in a season of studying leadership, and I'm enjoying it. But you know, once you start reading books on leadership, you find that a lot of them begin to sound a lot alike. Whether you're reading a secular book or a faith-based book, a lot of the leadership principles overlap, and you begin to review as you read more and more leadership books. But recently, I finished a book called George Washington on leadership. Now, it wasn't written by George Washington, but it was written about his life. So it was sort of like biographical. They were looking at stories of his life, and then at the end, the author would make a commentary on a leadership principle. And uh, as I was reading this, several themes began to emerge from the book on how George Washington led. And I love history. I just love it. So this was fascinating to me. I'd never read anything about George Washington, or quite frankly, any of the uh, fathers of, of, the, of the American countries. Country. Um, one thing that uh, came up over and over, the, though, was the battle against Britain. And the, the 12 colonies at that time were not united. There were 12 colonies. They eventually became 12 different states. And they were, they were not united often until it came to an enemy and then they got together. But even with coming together with an enemy, they still were not united often. And they were underprepared and under-equipped and unpaid, often hungry, often gone for a long time. There was conscription, which meant that they were forced to go into the army. They, this wasn't voluntary. And they were fighting against the empire of Great Britain. Like this was a, an underdog story if there ever was one. 
And as these wars or these battles would unfold, uh, over and over again, one of two things would happen. The first thing that would happen is that the, the soldiers would mutiny. And they'd say, forget this. We've been eight months away from our loved ones and our families. We can't provide for them. You haven't paid us. And they didn't pay them because the colonies were broke half the time. And they said, this is ridiculous. We're done. We're going home. And if we see George on the way, we might just take him down. And George Washington would ride out and he would stop the troops from their retreat. And he would address them and he would inspire them. The other thing that he would, the other time he would inspire them was when they were about to go into battle. And you can imagine that they were being ill-equipped against, you know, British soldiers. This was a terrifying thing. And very often, George Washington, even before and after he was president, when he was just commander of the, of the armies, he would be right at the front. And in fact, his commanders, his generals would try to pull him back because he would, he would be put himself in danger's way. But he would always be there. He was always there with the troops. And when he was about to inspire them or talk them down from a mutiny, he often addressed them in this way. He would say, my brave fellows. Many of his documented speeches and addresses start that way. My brave fellows. Now, what was he doing? You know, when you say my, he's giving a strong identification with the troops, right? If it's my family or my church, or my business, that belongs to me. It's part of my identity. And what George Washington was saying is that I may be president, but I am still with you in this battle. You are my troops, and this is my fight. And then he would say, brave fellows. He would have been telling them something that they didn't even believe about themselves. And he was trying to call out something that was lacking in either their mutiny or their fear. And he would say, you are brave. You are my brave troops. And this thing of bravery, as I was reading this book, it struck me, I realized we do not have nearly enough leadership books written that even touch on the topic of bravery. And yet, if you look at the world today, what more could leaders need than bravery and courage to stand up against the pressures that are facing them? And if so, outside the church, how much more inside the church do we need brave leaders to say, my brave spiritual family, my brave brothers and sisters, stand with me even though the pressure is rising and to allow that bravery to be called out of a place that we didn't even know existed. Amen. The scriptures talk about this all the time. They might use different words than courage and bravery. They say, but they do say, be strong and courageous. Don't worry. Take heart. All of these phrases are meant to instill courage and bring it out from a place that we didn't even know where it was. Now, why would the Bible say this over and over again? It's because people are not naturally brave. They aren't naturally brave. And don't confuse stupidity with bravery. There is a huge difference between throwing yourself off a mountain in a squirrel suit and being a hero of a story like Ehud. Am I right? The heroism of Ehud has nothing to, it doesn't, it doesn't hold a match to the, to, or this kind of bravery doesn't hold a match to the kind of bravery that we see in Ehud. We know that Ehud had a purpose for his bravery that transcended even his time. There was something, uh, a calling that was outside of his reality that was making him brave. 
And we know that it was different because it ushered in 80 years of peace. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. We, again, we read these numbers as if they're nothing. 80 years of peace. Did you know on September 2nd, it will only be 73 years since the end of the uh, the Second World War? We're not even 80 years removed from the Second World War. And yet Ehud was able to usher in peace with that one brave act. Now, I'm sure he did other leadership acts. I'm sure there were other battles. But he, he ushered in widespread peace and probably prosperity for 80 years under his leadership. That's remarkable. I did some research this week. Did you know the United States, in its over 200 years of existence, has never seen a period of 80 years without a war? Never. And we talk about the tens of thousands of people who were killed in the Old Testament not even close to how many people have died in American wars, and Canadians were often right alongside fighting. So the, and, and really, if you were to look even into world history, I don't think globally you can find a, a time, a, a period of 80 years where there was world peace. Eglon, I mean, Ehud accomplished something tremendous through his bravery, something tremendous. Wouldn't it be incredible to be used like that? So what were the characteristics of his bravery that Christians can learn from to increase the courage of our own lives. I have four points. First is this. Ehud was brave alone. Now, this seems contradictory to what Pastor Ray was just saying. Pastor Ray Yoder was just saying up on the stage, wasn't he? He said, we need each other. We need the body of Christ. We need a family to stand together. And when you become a member here, you become part of a bigger family. And that's true. And this church, which is a big family, has lots of cousins, extended family all over the place. And we have a global family. That's true. And I am always grateful for my big family. You have no idea what it's like. I actually feel guilty sometimes coming to work here because it is so good. And I feel bad for the people who, feel, who, who have the stress of a secular workplace where the pressures are unbelievable to stand for their faith. I actually feel, feel kind of like, ugh. I feel bad for you guys sometimes because it's so awesome here. You have no idea. You should all be terribly jealous of me as much as I am sorry for you, okay? And it's a big family. We have 70 people on our staff. It's awesome to work here. But I know that there will come a day when I must give a singular account for my faith. There will come a day when nobody is standing in front of me or behind me or beside me. And I alone am going to have to answer to some authority or some critic or some skeptic about why I believe what I believe. And when I stand alone, it will reveal a kind of courage and bravery that I don't know if I have yet. Ehud acted alone. He had a group of men that came with him, but he dropped them off and then went back. Now, he had that sword the whole time. He was looking for an opportunity, but it didn't present itself when he was surrounded with his buddies. He had to go back and make it happen. He acted alone, and that kind of bravery is really incredible. And I think that too many people today think that bravery, you know, I think about some of the some of the rallies, the, the, the rallies for evil causes. The rallies for evil causes. And I think of the people who think that they're brave for joining in a rally for an evil cause. That's not, that's not bravery. Bravery is not joining in with, with, you know, public opinion. That's not bravery. Bravery is not going on Facebook and making some silly comment and, and now stirring up a fight. That's not bravery. Ehud's bravery looked entirely different like the, than that. Bravery is the young Muslim woman who knows that conversion to Christianity means that she's going to be cut off from her family and her culture, possibly worse. That's bravery, and that's what we see in Ehud. So Ehud was brave alone. 
Next, Ehud was creative and strategic. I, I, get, I get frustrated when, when Christians are not creative and strategic in how they choose to make a statement. I get frustrated with that. And I'm telling you right now, um, you will win very few battles on social media. You can put your Bible verses there and inspire your brothers and sisters, and I like reading them, and I like seeing pictures, and I like you know, reading the stories of how you've witnessed in Winnipeg and all these things. But from my own experience, the debate that takes place on, on Facebook and other social media sites is um, inadequate for actually taking territory for the enemy. In fact, the only reason, I think I've told you this, but the only reason I often engage in, in these in these kinds of debates online is because I know that other Christians are watching what I'm writing and I want them to know that there's a good answer out there. But then at some point I, I just stopped talking. Ehud was creative and he was very strategic. You know, I told you it was, it was significant that he was left-handed. You know why that's significant? Because most people were not left-handed at that time. Most people were right-handed. But it just so happened that Ehud came from a tribe of Benjamin. Now, the Benjaminites were known. They had, in one battle, it says that they had 700 left-handed slingers. That means left-handed men who would go into battle and they would be the ones like David with Goliath with the slingshots and they would rain down rocks on their enemy like the artillery shooting over the cavalry, and then they would go in afterwards and mop up, right, with swords. That is what they were known for, and those guys were left-handed. Now, that's significant because if you're a right-handed swordsman, you would always put your sword on your left side. You would reach across to your scabbard, and you would draw it out like this. So, Historians believe that when Ehud went in to see King Eglon, they would have searched him. Of course they would have. They, were, they had bodyguards back then. But they didn't search where they didn't expect the sword to not be. They expected it to be here because everybody was right-handed. Everybody wore their, their sword on their, on their left side. <laughs> I was dreading this part of the message, knowing that I would probably mess up my left and my right. But he hid it here under his clothes. Maybe he strapped it to his inner thigh. It was a short, it was just a short blade. So he could reach it and he could pull it out and he could do the work of assassination. But you see, he was creative in how he did it. And I find that a lot of people don't think about how they're going to actually take on the enemy. They're bold without brains. And we have to be thoughtful and how we engage the enemy because we have lost major political battles even because of pressure from well-meaning people who did not understand the strategy that was going behind the thoughts. So we need to be strategic. Next, Ehud had a transcendent cause. Ehud had a cause that transcended the world. Now, there's a man named Robert Lewis. He wrote a book, a parenting book for, uh, for boys. It's wonderful. It's called How to Raise a Modern Day Knight. I read it and I felt like I grew up a little bit and I was an adult already. It was just fa fabulous. And he talks about the definition of a man. And his definition, one of, the, one of the pieces of his definition of a man is that a man is driven by a transcendent cause that is heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful. I'll say that again. A man is driven by a transcendent cause that is heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful. In other words, the biblical definition of a God-fearing man is somebody who understands that everything they do today lasts for another day, into eternity. And that's true, of course, for women as well. 
Your mission is also uh, transcendent, and that also gives you bravery. You know, I can't think of nothing that would make me more cowardly than thinking that this life is all I've got. That does not produce bravery. That produces cowardice. Because if I actually live as if this world is all I've got, I'm going to start to live fairly selfishly. I don't know of any person with a human nature who could not live selfishly if they knew that there was no, no consequences for how they live. And yet I know that there are consequences. And not only are there consequences for the way that I live here, but there are good rewards for the way that I live here. There are good consequences as well. And because I have an eternal perspective and because I understand that, as we often say, I'm not just living for the dot, I'm living for the dash of eternity. Because I understand that, I'm filled with bravery. You know, you think of how Paul would walk into these situations in the New Testament. And you say, Paul, you're crazy. What are you doing? He knew who sovereignly held his life in his hands. It made him courageous, unbelievably courageous. And he knew that any momentary suffering was not even worth comparing with the glory that was going to be revealed to him. Not even worth it. You see, we can be brave when we understand that we have a transcending cause. And not, and not only our lives lasting into eternity, but actually what you do lasts for eternity. What you do here sets a platform for other people to be saved so they can enter eternity, for the kingdom of God to return to earth. What you do lasts into eternity. It's a transcendent cause. And with that kind of mentality, you get filled with courage and bravery, even in the face of very, very dangerous skeptics. This is what uh, 1 John 1 verse uh, or 2 verse 17 says. It says, the world with its lust. That means the sinfulness of the world. This world and all its sinfulness is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. There is a forever in you. And Ehud knew that. And the last thing that Ehud had that made him courageous is that he had a call. You see, I think a lot of people assume that everybody is called to make political statements. I know that there are certain God-fearing, incredible men that we pray for often who are called to politics. And we have to be careful that we don't make too many shotgun statements, assuming that that's our calling. We have to know what God is exactly calling us to in order to be filled with courage. You know, if you are a parent, you know very well the exhaustion that comes with parenting. Absolute, unbelievable exhaustion. And there are many days that you wonder what on earth you got yourself into, right? And then they get to be teenagers, and you say, God, this is why they come out as babies. (laughs) Because teenagers, even my teenagers, God bless them, they're awesome, and I love them. But man... Some days you just, what on earth? This is so hard. It's so hard. And yesterday I was praying as I, as I felt some conflict in the house. And I said, God, please, I don't want there to be a wall between me and my children. Like there was between me and my dad when I was a teenager. Oh, that's hard work. But if that's your calling, and you know what God is asking you to do, you can face it bravely. We have a different kind of family. I've often spoken about this. We have a foster family. We've said hello and goodbye to 25 children. Well, we haven't said goodbye to all of them. We've said goodbye to 23. And uh, I tell you something. 
Our hearts break every time we say goodbye. Break. Break. A little piece of us leaves with every child that leaves our home. It's not ideal. It's not the way it should be. But if, and if I didn't know that I was called to do what I was doing, I would never do it. It would be too painful. I would run out of steam. It wouldn't be worth it in my eyes. But because I know precisely what God has called me to do, I can do it. And even in the moments when I desperately want to give up, in fact, I beg God to let me give up. He says, no, you've been called to it. Oh, yes, that's right. Now we carry on. And Ephesians says there's a hope in our calling. So it doesn't matter what you've been called to. It doesn't matter whether you've been called to be an artist or a writer or a a contractor. Whatever you're called to is what God expects you to use for his kingdom. It doesn't matter whether you are sick or you can't get out like you used to because you've grown older. It does not matter. It might be that your calling changes and now you have been called to your knees in your home instead of to the table in kids' land. But it doesn't matter. And whatever it is, I promise you, will exhaust you at the end of the day. And the only way you will ever continue in what God is asking you to do is if you have been called by him. It's the only way it works. Ehud was brave because he acted when no one else would. Ehud's courage was marked by a strategy and a creativity, but it was a calling from God and a transcendent cause that made Ehud courageous. But did you know that bravery does not always look the same way? And now I want to transition to an entirely different story and in a different time. In fact, this story doesn't happen in a castle. It happens in a garden. And it doesn't happen with a, with a bloody war or an assassination attempt. In fact, it's one of the classic passages for nonviolence in the Bible. In fact, instead of attacking, Jesus heals in this Bible story. And it's the story that we find in Luke 22. And I'm going to not read it all for you, but I want to give you a little bit of a background drop, backdrop to Luke 22. And this is why I want to give you a backdrop, because what I want you to understand is that Jesus was always brave, no matter what he was doing. I want to show you that in Luke 22, but then I want to show you the time in his life that I believe that Jesus may have demonstrated the greatest courage. I want to show it to you. In Luke 22, it starts with an, uh, a betrayal uh, or the plot to betray and kill Jesus. Now, Jesus was always, his life was always on the line. And he didn't, it was almost as if he could be, you know, um, uncaring about it because he knew exactly the time that God would bring him to the cross. So he could be brave. And maybe you think, well, I could be brave then too. I don't know. It'd be kind of terrifying to know that there's people who always want to hurt you. In, in uh, verse 7 to 13, he tells a bold prophecy in preparing for the Passover. And I'll tell you something, it takes courage to prophesy. (laughs) And the more specific you are in your prophecy, the more courageous you are. You know, it's one thing to say, I believe that God is saying Canada will be good next year. (laughs) Huh? What? How are you going to measure that? (laughs) Jesus said, go into town. There's going to be a guy leading a donkey, carrying a jug of water. Ask him. He's got a room prepared for us. Go, it's going to happen. Just go do it. That's a bold prophecy. Right? It's one thing for me to hear something about, you know, uh, uh, hear some strategy in prayer. It's an entirely different thing to say it. Last year, this happened to me. It's fascinating. Last year, I was praying for camp in my devotional time. 
And God gave me, he often would give me pictures, and, and I'm kind of artistic, right? You know that, so I, I get pictures. I often don't even know, you know what to do with the pictures and the dreams that I have. But he gave me this picture, and I knew that it was significant. I just felt that in my spirit. And often when I've been praying in the past, he would give me pictures of, you know, like, like animals trying to attack the, the camp, you know, spiritual animals of this sort. And I would pray against it and, and whatnot. And, but this, last, last summer, he gave me a picture of a turtle, moving slowly up towards the camp. And I knew that the turtle was bad. Now, you might not think that a turtle is a particularly evil animal, but you've never seen the snapping turtles that we have at Bird River. And evil. <laughs> evil has a face. <laughs> um, and here was this slow-moving turtle coming towards camp. And as I prayed, I said, well, Lord, what are you warning us about? And, and God said, pray for endurance this summer because things are going to unravel, unravel, not at the beginning, but at the end of the summer. That's when the attacks are going to come. I said, okay. So I, just, I was just going to keep it in my journal to pray for as I, you know, as I was praying in my devotions and whatnot. But one day I thought, you know, no, I should share this with the camp leadership. So I, I actually just sent it out on our group chat. And I said, hey, guys, I, I got this in prayer. So let's just commit it and see what God is saying. And, and Kyle Shepard, who's our camp director, he, he got back to me right away. He says, you wouldn't believe this. He said, God, like he says, the other day I was walking through the camp, and God all of a sudden gave me a picture of a turtle. It's so strange, and I didn't know what it meant, but now I can totally see he was trying to affirm the, the, what he showed you in prayer. It's, it takes a lot of, it's easy to leave that in my journal and pray about it. It's very difficult to say it, so it's wonderful when God gives us that affirmation through someone else, right? And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a slow burn of endurance wearing out all summer last year, and boy, some things got unraveled. Mostly just, you know, between staff who are tired and stuff like that. But it, it was a long haul last summer. This year, I get a different sense as I pray about summer. But what, my point is this. Prophecy takes courage. And Jesus prophesies all over in Luke 22. Then Luke uh, uh, 22, 14 to 23 talks about the First Communion Supper, which ends in practically a fist fight. Goes into uh, verse 23 to, tw to 30. They're arguing about who's going to be the, you know, the greatest in the kingdom. It's just like every family gathering you could ever imagine. You know, grandma makes a lovely meal. You're all sitting down together. And by the end, the uncles are fighting about who's the greatest in the family. You know. And in fact, it's so funny to me because the next part, well, there's a couple more prophecies, but then Jesus heads out into the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you know what he says right before he leaves the house? I just, oh man, I can hear my mom saying this. Literally, I quote, enough of that, he told them, and he went out. <laughs> Isn't that just how mom leaves the room often? Enough! I'm going to pray. <laughs> and Jesus went out into the garden. Now the rest of, of uh, Luke, after his prayer in the garden, talks about his arrest and his, uh, his appearance before the Sanhedrin. But I want to read to you what I believe is the most profoundly courageous thing we can see in the Gospels. Jesus, he went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. They must have wondered, what does he mean? He then withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. Now listen to this. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and great sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. He got up from prayer and came to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he said to them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. But while he was still speaking... 
Suddenly, a mob was there, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them, and he came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of a man with a kiss? You know, the gospels are filled with the courage of Jesus, walking on water, calming the storms, speaking with people who had contagious diseases who no one else would come in contact with or women from a, from a questionable background and a questionable society. All of these things took bravery. He would meet with the Sanhedrin, bravery. He would meet with certain members of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, bravery. And yet I don't think any of these actions speak of the bravery as Jesus in the garden. I believe that one of the most brave sentences you could read in the entire scripture is this one. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is courage. This is bravery at a level that we, very, that we just don't see on a human level. And yet it inspires And the interesting thing to me that between the stories of Ehud, which is this great victorious battle and Jesus in the garden, is that in, in the story of the garden, everything appears lost. And yet Jesus is still brave doing the work of God who sent him. You know, there's people who are languishing in prisons. I, I thought about that when Brother Young was here. I thought it's incredible. What an incredible story. But all those doors that opened before him as he left the prison. But you know that for every one story like his, there are probably thousands more of, of pastors who die in prison. They don't all have those stories. And both are courageous. He was courageous when, when Brother Young got up and walked. Right? He told the story. Just as courageous are those who languish away wondering if they're forgotten. Just as courageous. Two different stories the same courage and the same source of courage. The same source of courage. At this time in history, I believe that we need this courage like never before. There's an organization called Open Doors. They look at persecution of Christians across the world. And in 2016, they celebrated 25 years of tracking this. And they said that 2016 was the most dangerous year for Christians globally that they had seen in a quarter century. That is a remarkable statement. 25 years, it's only getting worse. And you know, there's people in the, in the church who are saying that it's not true. Persecution isn't as bad as you think. No, it's very bad. And what I find interesting about how uh, Open Doors defines persecution is that they define it like this. Any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Any hostility now, certainly, we're not living in a time when we're facing physical hostility yet. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But we are certainly facing intellectual, academic, philosophical pressure. We're facing relational and professional pressure. We are, in fact, I spoke with somebody just this morning who told me that somebody he coaches with is an atheist who just mocks them every time they're, they're in a group with the other coaches on this team. He just makes fun of him for being a Christian. That's persecution. He's being openly discriminated. He's feeling hostility because of his, of his identification with Christ. And when I think about the future, I start to get nervous and I start to play these what-if games. And it's at times like this that I need to say, no, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus. 
You know, I'm a very, I, I, you know, I, I can come up with great elaborate scenarios. You know, if it actually does get as bad as I can imagine, you know, and I can imagine pretty bad things in the end times and, and we all have to go into hiding. I always think I'll just run north. No one goes to the north for anything. Like, I mean, as soon as the mine is dry, they just leave. Like, there is nothing up there. I will be fine. Me and Jesus up in the north somewhere, trapping and, I don't know, living off the land. And then you and I remember, that is not the mission that Jesus is calling me to. To live a hermit's life and hide from all trouble. Oh, yeah. Not my will, but thine be done, Jesus. Let me give you four fast points about what we can see in Jesus. Number one, isn't it brilliant that courage and fear can coexist even in the life of Messiah? Courage and fear coexist, and you might say, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't afraid. Are you kidding me? Call it fear, stress, dread. I don't care what you call it. He was so anxious that there were capillaries breaking and they were weeping out with the sweat as drops of blood. Incredible stress. He was afraid of what was coming. I don't know if he was so afraid of the physical torment as he was about the relational torment, knowing that he'd be separated from his father. I don't know what was worse to him. But there was torment in his soul. And quite frankly, that gives me hope because I'm often afraid. And I know that I have a Savior who stands before the Lord who identifies with my fear of what might come because I play those silly what-if games. The next thing is that courage can be expressed through anguish. It says in Hebrews, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Imagine that. There is a way to be in absolute, utter turmoil and anguish and still be reverent towards God. You know, I know so many youth pastors, they, they say these cute little things. God can handle your big emotions. If you're angry at God, you just go ahead and tell him. Wait a second. We have to be very cautious about how we approach a holy God. We're not flippant about these things. What this is saying is not that we can be silly with God and just be open and, and emotional with him all the time. No, it means that when we are in the pit of despair, we can still be worshipful and he meets us in that. It's very different. I have a verse memorized, Psalm 94, verse 19. It says, when I'm filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. When I'm filled with care, your comfort brings me joy. And you know what? Even Jesus was comforted in his anguish. God sent an angel to minister to him. But do you know that we have someone even better than an angel? We have the Holy Spirit. And did you know that the peace that the Holy Spirit brings to us in our anguish is as real as any grief you could ever experience? I know this. There was this time when we were saying goodbye to three boys. And I tell you something, we thought we were going to raise these boys. They were living in our house for almost two years. We loved them. We had given our entire hearts to these kids. And I know I've told you this story before, but I want, to, I want to tell you what happened when we were praying about it. They went home and we weren't sure if they were going to stay in their home or what, but we had been preparing for this for, you know, it was seven months we knew, then three months, then three weeks, then three days, and then they were gone. And uh, we had a, a small group of people come in and they were praying with us and, and comforting us and being the church to us. And I was sitting in my living room and I was just sobbing. I was just sobbing because my heart was broken three ways, you know. And I said, and, and there was no even words, and people were praying and crying with us. And all at once, 
Uh, and Tara and I were sitting in the middle and people were around us. And all at once I got this picture of Jesus on the waves with Peter. Except the waves were my living room. And Jesus was there and I was Peter. And you know, he bent down and you know, just like you do with your, your kids, he said, you know, you touch them under the chin. He says, can I, have, can I have your eyes, please? Can I see your eyes? And I looked at Jesus and he says, Tom, my son, it's going to be okay. All the emotions subdued. The peace that passes understand it was as real as any grief I was experiencing. And then you know what would happen? We'd start to pray and pray. And then, and then all of a sudden I would think, but I'm so sad. I love them so much. And anguish would pour out of me and I'd start sobbing again. And Jesus, no, son, look at my eyes. We're going to be okay. Do you know that many times since then, when it's been unbearably hard, He's done that. You know, and many people in this church have gone through things much harder than that even. You know, watching a loved one die before them, you know. When my father-in-law was dying of cancer, he told me, he didn't tell anyone else, he said, he said, I know that if I tell anybody else this, they'll just think it's the morphine. <laughs> he says, but I know you'll believe me, Tom. He said, last night I was so discouraged I couldn't sleep. He was in unbelievable shape. He had cancer, but it was just ravaging his body. He says, Tom, I was so sad and I was so discouraged and I was so scared. And he said, all at once, this white light filled my room. He said, and then I slept. It's the Holy Spirit bringing comfort to a man who was dying. Incredible. Even in our anguish, God meets us. It makes me courageous. It gives me hope that I can face it. Secondly, or thirdly, courage is sometimes restraint. You know, Jesus, he didn't, he didn't attack with swords or, or even words, quite frankly. When, they, when, when, one of his, when one of his disciples struck off the ear of the servant, he picked it up and he healed it. He says, now is not the time for swords. And we know that even Isaiah prophesied about this, that he would be led to the slaughter as a lamb is silent before the shears, right? Jesus only spoke when he needed to. We talk so much. Sometimes the greatest courage is the courage to remain silent in the face of yapping dogs. A patient man is better than a warrior, and he who rules his temper than he who takes a city. Not always, but sometimes. And the last thing is this. Courage need not be understood. Courage doesn't need to be understood. There's lots of people who question, why do you do if it hurts so much? Why are you a foster family? I don't know. Why are you a farmer when you sit there nervously twiddling your thumbs wondering if the rain's going to fall every year? <laughs> why does Pastor Ray do church renewal when it's exhausting? Because we know what we've been asked to do. And if you're a teacher, or if you're a principal, or if you're a boss, a business owner, a trucker, you do it because God has asked you to do it, and you don't need people to understand it. There comes a time when your relationship with Christ is such that you do what he tells you, not what other people tell you to do. It's just what you do. So courage need not be understood. Here's the summary. Courage acts alone. Courage takes strategy and creativity. Courage requires a transcendent purpose. Courage requires a God call on our lives. Courage and fear can coexist. Courage sounds like anguish at times. Courage is as much restraint as it is action. Courage is courage regardless of whether others understand. Now this is the question. Does courage always look the same? No, of course not. In the Bible, we have two incredible stories of two courageous people. One, our Messiah. The other, a, a hero, a, a, almost a barbarian in his style. You know, Ehud. 
Very different. And this is the point. If you don't get alone with God and figure out what he wants you to do, you can't be courageous in the way that he's asking. Because one person's courage is not how another should look. But I'm telling you right now, God is calling courage out of all of us, out of his children. And if you want to grow in courage this week, let me give you a couple suggestions. Number one, listen carefully to God. Listen for your cause. If you do not know what you have been called to do, get on your knees and ask. It could be that you've been on your knees and you're just not moving anywhere. This is often the problem with young adults. They say, God, what should I do with my life? Sometimes it's easier to move a stone that's rolling than it is one to get one going that isn't. Start moving and God, let God direct your plans. But some of you have been running so far, so fast, so long that you need to stop and take stock of whether you're living for the cause that Christ has called you. Live with integrity. This week, again, I heard about business people that I worship shoulder to shoulder with who do not act as they act in church, in business. Drives me crazy. If you live with integrity, you will have nothing to fear. Romans tells us this. Obey the laws, you won't have anything to worry about when they come to get you. Live with integrity. Let who you are in this building be who you are out there unless who you are out there should not be in this building, then just act as you should in this building out there. <laughs> Don't act bad in this building. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Confess your sins and forgive others. Did you know that bravery comes from confession? Oh, I tell you something. Some of the bravest moments have come when I've told people my darkest sins. Confess a sin to someone that you've never, that you've never confessed sin that you've never confessed. You see bravery will grow on you. Fear the Lord and not men. Learn to wait patiently and read the word. My goodness sakes, if you want to know what God's asking you to do, read this word. It's filled with instructions. And let him take those words and mold them and shape them into a mission for your life that is singular in purpose that you and you alone are going to have the courage to fulfill. We're in times when there's going to be pressure all over the place. We need to take this thing seriously so that on a day of reckoning or questioning or skepticism, we can stand boldly and know what we believe and know that we're living in the center of God's will. We need this. And you know what God's asking you to do? Just the next little step, that's all. He just wants to give you one little piece. So I'm going to pray for you. And uh, we're going to end there with a prayer today instead of a song because we've gone a little bit longer. But just take a moment to consider what God might be asking of you as you listen to him in prayer. Father, I'm so grateful for the example you set for us in courage and bravery. Jesus, I'm grateful. I'm also grateful for the crazy people before and after you, who, the stories we can read in the, in the word who served you so boldly and fearlessly. Jesus, I pray that you would give us that kind of resolve. I pray that we would have a resolve to do whatever you are asking us to do, whatever the cost. Jesus, I pray that we would be known as people who love you and courageously proclaim you no matter where we go. That our lives, whether we speak or are silent, would exemplify the God whom we love. And only you can do this in our lives. We cannot work it up for ourselves. So God, I just pray that we would find that one little piece that we can work on this week with you. And I thank you that you're going to do the greater work anyways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, 
please visit us at myselfland.com.